If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of BBC History Magazine, and welcome to the new weekly BBC History Magazine podcast. Because so many of you have been downloading our monthly edition, we've decided to trial a weekly version, so each podcast will be a little shorter than before, but over the course of the month, you'll get a lot more history. We plan to try this for a few months over the summer and see how it goes. And of course, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Uh, There's some details about how you can get in touch at the end of the podcast. Coming up this month... Athelstan is the first king of the English. That was Sarah Foote on the Anglo-Saxon king Athelstan. They knew that under his command they would almost certainly win the next battle. And that was Peter Snow on the Duke of Wellington. Before we go on, let me just tell you that BBC History Magazine is Britain's best-selling history title on sale every four weeks in all good newsagents, or by subscription. You can visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information. Now, on to our first interview, which is with a historian who's got impeccable credentials. Sarah Foote is Regius Professor of Ecclesiastical History at the University of Oxford. Her new book, Athelstan, The First King of England, is just published by Yale University Press. Athelstan ruled England in the 10th century, and Sarah has written a fascinating feature in the July issue of BBC History magazine, exploring why Athelstan isn't remembered as great, yet his grandfather, Alfred, does have that moniker. I caught up with her in Christchurch College in Oxford to find out more. 
My first question to you is, is, is based on the title of your book, um, Athelstan, uh, the first king of England. Now, how accurate and fair is it to, make, to, to say he's the first king of England and what does that mean? Athelstan's the first king to rule over the whole territorial area that we would think of as England from the English Channel in the south as far as not just the modern border between England and Scotland but actually as far as the Firth of Forth England extended much farther north in the 10th century than than it does nowadays and no king before Athelstan held power over that territorial mass. So there are other kings for whom the claim has been made, like Alfred, that he was the first king of England. But Alfred never held any power directly in the north, never held power north of the Humber. Athelstan acquires direct control over Northumbria after the death of a Danish king in York called Sigstrich in 927. And Athelstan marched north with an army to take over Sigstrich's kingdom And there was apparently no fighting and the Northumbrians submitted to him and that gave him power over the whole of the formerly independent Northumbrian kingdom and gave him a direct border with the Scots to the north of there. So what did he call himself then? Did he say, I am king of England, king of the English? At the beginning of his reign, before he conquered the Northumbrians, he called himself king of the Angles and Saxons, or king of the Anglo-Saxons. As soon as he had conquered Northumbria, he changed his royal style and called himself king of the English. Royal titles in this period are not territorial, they tend to be person-related, but he's the first king who could genuinely claim to be king of all the English people, and that's the title he uses But later in his reign, he enhances that style even further to call himself King of the English, but also Emperor of Britain. Now, what does that mean, Emperor of Britain? That means that he claimed hegemony over the other Celtic rulers in Britain. So the kings of of the Scots and of Strathclyde, the kings of the different Welsh sub-kingdoms, so that all the native rulers in the British Isles submitted themselves to his authority. So he didn't have direct rule over Scotland, but he had peace treaties with the King of the Scots that they promised that they wouldn't um, fight one another or line up with somebody else's, with the enemies of one another. Sure. So was was that more than just words then? That was a statement saying, I'm Emperor of Britain, which had... Which, which is justifiable. There's no formal ceremony crowning him or giving him new regalia as emperor in the same way that Charlemagne is crowned as emperor in Rome in 800. But the, it's clear that Adelstan saw his ru- rule in imperial terms and that this claim to rule the whole of Britannia, not just the place where the English lived, is one that, that had some justification in, in reality because of the submissions made to him by the English, by the, the Scottish and the Welsh kings. There are times when those who've submitted themselves to his authority rebel against it. So in 934, the king of the Scots had clearly um, done something to contravene the terms of that treaty because Adelstan went north with a huge army and a sea force to Scotland and ravaged by land and sea as far as Caithness to subdue the king of the Scots again. And there's a major battle at the end of Adelstan's reign where the Scots unite with Northumbrians and Norse from Dublin um, and he again leads an army and defeats them in the field. Okay, so perhaps before we get on to that battle, we ought to backtrack a bit um, because we haven't really talked about 
the, the land in which Athelstan was born, or indeed said when he was alive, we probably ought to do that. So he was king from, is it 924 to 3-9? Yes, that's right. He became king in, in 924, um, crowned in 925. He died in 939. And do we know when he was born? We don't know exactly when Athelstan was born, but probably around 894. It seems that he met his grandfather, Alfred the Great, um, while Alfred was still alive and Alfred died in 899. And William of Malmesbury tells us that he was 30 when he came to the throne in 924, which was give us a birth date of around 894. So can you in any way summarise what sort of land Athelstan was born into? What sort of place did he, did he, did he arrive into? Athelstan was almost certainly born in Wessex, where his grandfather Alfred was king and his father Alfred's eldest son was by this point the heir apparent so it was expected that he would succeed his father. It seems likely that he was born in one of the royal palaces in the southern part of the kingdom so we'd be looking for somewhere in Hampshire um, or Wiltshire. He might have been born at Winchester which was a favoured royal court. He might have been born in one of the other Royal Vills in, in the southwestern part of Wessex. So we're looking at a, a sort of Hampshire, Wiltshire, Dorset kind of early childhood. But things changed for Athelstan radically when he was about five or six years old and his father remarried, at which point Athelstan seems to have been packed off to stay with his aunt, Alfred's daughter, Athelflaed, the Lady of the Mercians. And he probably spent the rest of his childhood and his early adolescence in the Midland Kingdoms of England, so in perhaps at the Royal Palace at Tamworth. And you've talked about Wessex there and and Alfred. Um, by the time Athelstan was born, Wessex had been um, defended against the Viking threats. Is that fair to say? Had, he, had, 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 had that threat receded? King Alfred's major victory against the Vikings was in 878 at the Battle of Eddington, and that's followed by a prolonged period of peace during which Alfred does a lot of work to improve the defences of his kingdom, reorganises his army and fortifies places in the south so that if the Vikings come back, they can't do the damage they did before. Viking armies do in fact return in 892 and so Athelstan was born in a period where there was renewed raiding between 892 and 896 but all the defensive measures that Alfred had put in place actually meant that in the end the Vikings didn't do very much damage over that four-year period and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says in 896 that in many ways they suffered more from the, the natural mortality of, of leading noblemen and and trouble with um, death among cattle than they suffered from the Vikings in those those four years. So by by the time Athelstan was was walking and talking, the Viking threat was pretty much removed. So Wessex had successfully driven the Danes out fr from its shores and. Uh, Alfred had also extended the rule of West Saxon kings over the southwestern portion of the Midland Kingdom of Mercia, so west west of Watling Street. Mm, okay. So yeah, so so we, we talked about Wessex and and, and Athelstan's position there. Um, but previously, you mentioned this this big battle towards the end of his reign, um, and that's the Battle of Brunanburh. Is that's that the right. correct pronunciation? Yes, that's right. Um, and that's in nine three seven. Yes. So a couple of years before he dies. Um, and is this, is this the main event of his reign, would you say? Is this, is this the thing that we ought to really remember as, as the key, key moment? 
It's the key event in the record of his reign in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Unlike the Chronicle for Alfred's reign, the reports for Adelstan's are quite sparse and mostly very short factual information about what's happening. But suddenly, under the year 937, for the first time, instead of a brief laconic account of what happened in this year, there's a whole poem, 74 lines of verse, uh, describing this great victory that Adelstan and his brother Edmund together had, fighting against a combined force of Scots, Norse and Northumbrians. And the chronicle poem ends by saying, never before, since the Angles and Saxons first came to these shores, had there been greater slaughter. So in the, in the popular memory, either before Athelstan's death or very soon after he died, it was thought of as the key event of his reign. A generation later, a West Saxon chronicler, Otherword, could still remember this as the great battle by which all the fields of Britain were brought um, under one peaceable rule. The- one of the points that you're making in the feature is that Alfred gets all this great press and Athelstan doesn't. Um, but I think your, your, your view is that that's, that's unfair and, uh, and, and a bad reflection on Athelstan. Is that, is that... Yeah, I think absolutely that's unfair. And if you've written a biography and lived with, with somebody or tried to recreate enough of a person that you've lived with them for all this time. You start to get very passionate about defending their own corner. Mm. But I do think, objectively, that Adelstan has at least as good a, a case as Alfred to be considered great, and possibly more so. Alfred was never king of all of England. His territorial range extended no further than southern Mercia. He never drove the Danes out of the rest of England. And yes, he set many things in train, but Adelstan has achievements which extend far beyond the battlefield. He was a great legislator, a a massive patron of the church, promoted new ideas about kingship, a new vision of how you portray yourself as a king, not just in in the royal styles he used, but in the images by which he chose to, to have himself reflected. And Adelstan functions on a European stage in a way that Alfred never did. If you want to know why it is that Alfred has taken away um, the glory that I think should belong to Adelstan, I think we are seriously limited by the fact that there is no surviving life of King Adelstan, whereas we have an almost contemporaneous life of Alfred written by somebody in his immediate circle. So writing a biography of Alfred, we know a great deal about him as a person, and you can start to think about what he might have thought in certain circumstances. We've got none of that biographical material for Adelstan, and the only extended narrative we have of his actions was written by William of Malmesbury in the 12th century, based probably on earlier sources, but that remains disputed. So that's enough of it then, we just, we don't know enough about him, or in the past we didn't know enough about him to be able to construct a, a suitably glorious life. I think one of the questions that people always ask me is, why am I the first person to write a life of Adelstan? Why has nobody ever done it before in modern times? And I think the answer is that we didn't know enough about the different kinds of sources from which you have to piece together a biography. So I've been extremely dependent on scholarship done over the last 30 years on the different elements of the source material for Alfred's reign, for Adelstan's reign, on the basis of which I could then write a synthetic account. Before that, it wasn't really possible. That was going to be one of my questions here, actually. Is I can see the book there. It's, it's quite, a, quite a chunky book, a reasonable-sized tome. Um, and 
my assumption was there wasn't really that much we knew about him. So how have you managed to get how many, there must be 300 pages, 300 pages in there. How, how have you managed to, to, to fill 300 pages from, from what must have been a fairly limited um, source material? What I discovered when I started writing this is that if you move deliberately away from the narrative sources and you look to see what you can find out about Adelstan elsewhere, in fact, the range of source material is, is much wider than, than I had perhaps anticipated. I got a lot of material, more than I had originally anticipated, out of what may seem the driest and least helpful text for a biographer, namely his law codes and the documents that he produced to give grants of land and privilege to churches and, and nobles in his reign. And I found that by studying the law codes in close detail, I was able to see the ways in which Adelstan was personally taking lines on particular issues, especially the question of theft. You need to remember that Avalstan in uniting England is bringing together peoples who have for the past hundred years suffered extensively from the disruptions occasioned by Danish warfare. There's been a lot of territorial disruption, monastic life has suffered substantially and there's been really what I suppose we would now call social breakdown. One of the things that Adelstan sought to do was to mend that fractured society. And using he used law as a way to bind his people together towards a common objective of making this a better place for them to live. In a period where there's been a great deal of mobile warfare and much ravaging of, of individual lands and, his, and estates, it seems that native people took the opportunity to go and steal things from their neighbours because if the Vikings were doing it, why would you not do that as well? Adelstan saw theft as a kind of breach of the peace and he sought repeatedly to legislate against thieving as a sort of shorthand for all kinds of, of socially unacceptable behaviour. And he articulated his views about theft in saying, breach of the peace is breach of your oath to me as king. Therefore, the theft of your neighbour's cow is a personal affront to me, your king. His law codes contain one third of all the references to thieves and thieving in the whole corpus of Anglo-Saxon law. He goes, every code comes back to it. And as, as you move through his reign and later codes are produced, they say, the king has legislated on this before and we're not getting anywhere. So what are we going to do now? A group of, a peace guild is established in London where their aim is to try and prevent these breaches of the peace that he's been legislating against. They say the king wants us to do this. We will try and do this for him. And you imagine that there are other such groups in other parts of the country also trying to effect this, I think, very clearly royally driven agenda mm. about how to put this society back together and make it function more effectively. OK, so it sounds like from those, um, as you describe, fairly dry, limited sources, you've been able to make um, a reasonable assessment of the sort of man that Athelstan would have been. So can you summarise that? Who, who, what was, who was Athelstan? What, what sort of a, a person would he have been if you'd have met him in Wessex in 932 AD? I, the thing that 
I've really come to recognise about Adelstein, which I hadn't appreciated before I spent so much time with him, is how important his faith was to him. Mm. And I would say that the most central thing to Adelstein and in his sense of himself was his, his relationship as a Christian with his God, his God who made him king of the English, who anointed him to rule this people and in the oaths he swore at his coronation who made him swear to look after as shepherd of his people and I think that's the driving force behind a great deal of what Adelstan does which gives you a completely different picture from the man rushing into battle with his sword to quell the Scots. There's a poem um, that survives in one of the manuscripts that Adelstan gave to um, Christchurch Canterbury, which, which opens with the words Rex Pius Adelstan, pious King Adelstan, holy and, and renowned is, is your name. I think that's how he would like to be remembered. And I think if I met him, that's, that's the impression that, that I would very much guess of him. And you think it was genuine piety, not piety no, for political purposes? I think, it, I think it's a genuine personal piety. His, his law codes are also full of statements about the importance of, of supporting the church, the need to give alms to the poor, the necessity to care for the widow and the orphan, something he swore that he would do in his, in his own coronation oaths. He's a really substantial benefactor to the church, and I think that's putting his money where his mouth is, giving books and, and precious objects. He was a, he's a highly educated man. Um, William of Malmesbury says that he was educated at um, the court of his aunt Adelflad in, in Mercia. And we don't really know much about um, who taught him or quite what. There's a collection of foreign scholars at, at his court and he clearly enjoyed their company and in, enjoyed listening to them talking about their own ideas and sharing um, new continental ideas, for example, about the organisation of, of monasticism. Mm. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? That's something you've, you've um, written on uh, for us before, is um, uh, sort of the European dimension to this period. And, and it's perhaps something that, that, that we don't think about so much. When we think of, of, of uh, Europeans in, in, in Britain in the 10th century, or the 9th, 10th century, we tend to think of, of Vikings coming on and hitting us. But actually, there's, you, you, there's a lot more to it than that, isn't there? Was, there was a, a big level of cultural exchange going on across Europe, and, and Athelstan was, was important in that. Athelstan played a central role in this, and, and he did so by um, the strategic deployment of his sisters around the courts of Western Europe. Um, Athelstan had the misfortune to be um, the eldest of 13 children, eight of whom were girls. Um, quite So he had um, four younger brothers, but also eight, eight sisters. And he married them strategically in to different noble and royal houses in Europe. So his sister Edith married Otto, um, king of the Saxons. Um, one of his sisters married the king of the Franks, Charles the Simple. Another one married Hugh, duke of the Franks. One is married to a prince in Burgundy. So this, this gave him, he had, he had sisters at all these courts round Europe and was clearly corresponding with them while they were abroad. And so books and people are exchanged between England, Germany, Burgundy, France, um, and also Italy in, in, during his reign. Just, just to conclude, so can you summarise the, the main achievements of 
of King Athelstan. Athelstan's the first king to unite all the English people under the rule of one man. So in his reign is achieved the vision that Bede could only imagine when he wrote his history of the English church and people. When, Alf when Bede wrote of the Gens Anglorum united by their Christian faith, maybe he had in the corner of his mind an image that one day that whole English people would be brought together under one rule. Athelstan is the first king of the English and as a Christian king, uh, a Rex Christianissimus, as Bede would have called him, a most Christian king, he achieved everything that Bede would have imagined and more, celebrating the unity of the race and also the promotion of the Christian faith which bound all those English people together. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. So that was Sarah Foote, whose Athelstan, the first king of England, is published by Yale. And as I said, Sarah's feature, entitled If King Alfred Was Great, Was Athelstan Even Greater, is in the July issue of the magazine. Sarah is also one of the band of distinguished historians who have nominated sites for the new BBC History magazine book 100 Places That Made Britain, written by myself and published by BBC Books. The premise is simple. I asked 100 historians to each nominate a place of particular significance in the course of British history, and armed with their reasoning, I visited each place and wrote about why it mattered then and what you can see now. It's on sale for $14.99 in all good news agents, but if you take out a new subscription to BBC History magazine this month, it's yours for free. Plus, you save 30% on the newsstand price and have the magazine delivered to your door. If you want to take advantage of this offer, simply visit www.bbcsubscriptions.com forward slash history magazine or call 0844-844-0260 and use the promotional code POD140. Now, on to the second interview this week, which is with television presenter turned historian Peter Snow, whose book To War with Wellington, From the Peninsula to Waterloo, has just been published in paperback by John Murray. 
Wellington, of course, was one of Britain's greatest generals, the victor over Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815. Peter is going to be debating the respective merits of Wellington in comparison with his near-contemporary Nelson at the Chalk Valley History Festival on Thursday the 7th of July. So I called up with him for a quick chat about Wellington, the man and the general. Peter, the first thing I need to know is um, why, why are you interested in, in Wellington at all? What's, what's, what fascinates you about him? It just seems to me that, that 200 years after one of the most extraordinarily successful military adventures and campaigns ever, uh, that it's worth reminding people what an extraordinary achievement Wellington's and his soldiers was in pushing back Napoleon's armies from Portugal right the way back to Waterloo. It was a brilliant operation. It took a long time. Mm-hmm. Is he someone who's always fascinated you? Yes, I was actually, I mean, I have to admit this, I was at Wellington College. I, ah. <laughs> I, was, I was brought up as a Wellingtonian. As a, as a, in fact, I think probably we tended to rather rebel against that. But it's always, I've always been aware of him. And it wasn't really until I went off with my son, Dan, uh, three years ago and did a, a, a program on Wellington's Peninsula campaign in 1808, in, 1808, mm-hmm. in 2008, uh, 200 yep. years later, yep. that um, I really got to know just how much, what a wealth there was of material, uh, diaries, memoirs, uh, conversations with friends afterwards, that the guys who fought with Wellington had. And that gave me a huge intro to the uh, the wealth of material there was in, in, in explaining the story through their mouths. Mm, okay. So you've, you've written a, a new book about him. What, 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 I mean, he's been much discussed, much written about. What, what new is there to say about the man? Well, I think it, 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 it's not so much a question of what's new. It's, it's mm. that there is so much, so much material. It's the first war in history, really, when you have hundreds and hundreds of people who fought with Wellington describing what it was like to be with him. And so I think that further research, which I, I did, really revealed more about Wellington than I've ever really understood myself. And I hope that other people won't have understood. He was not just the sort of withdrawn, aloof, rather arrogant character that many people think. He had many, many sides to him. Um, he was a, a, a man capable of very deep emotion. He was very shocked and appalled by the carnage, for example, at the siege of Badajoz, which he himself, of course, has ordered. And he was seen weeping in the uh, in the breach the following morning. And one of his tougher generals, old Thomas Picton, the doughty Welshman, said, what on earth is the matter with you? Uh, to Wellington, who up to then had seemed to him to be a very a, a solid, rather remote character. Last thing he'd do is burst into tears. That, I think, is rather fascinating. And his, 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 his adventures on ladies' man, of course, too, has always tickled me very much. I mean, he was the chap who, who was... Um, uh, very, very keen on the ladies, and he got up, up after all sorts of mischief in his life. Um, all these things are intriguing. The background to his campaigns, the, his obsession with logistics, his keenness to try and make the camps sanitary where the men's lived, although, of course, it wasn't very successful. Three quarters of the deaths in the peninsula were caused by disease rather than musket shots. But Wellington still tried to do something about that. He got his guys tents in 1813. He finally got the, the army going with tents. He, he did his best to improve medicine uh, in the army. He got a very good guy to manage his, his uh, surgery and so on on the, on the campaign. It, it, he, was a, he was an extraordinarily capable, not just a wonderful commander who won every battle he fought, but an extraordinarily capable and rounded figure. 
Mm, okay. In um, Gary Sheffield has has reviewed your book for the for BBC History magazine, and at one point he said was that Wellington was admired rather than loved by his men. Do you do you agree with that? Uh, that oh, view? In, in, yes, entirely. I, I, he was certainly no question. He was not really loved by his guys. He was respected and admired. They they knew that they were they knew that under his command they would almost certainly win the next battle. Mm. He was the guy. One of one of the one of the men memorably called him that long nosed beggar. What licks the French? I mean, you know, he was he was he he was. A, they realised they had a very exceptional general, even though he was ruthless with them. He would you know he would order the hanging of anybody who pinched pigs or chicken from the local people in France and Spain and Portugal on the way through in his campaigns. He was determined to keep the hearts and minds of the people on side. He, he said, for example, in modern terms, really, he said, this is an army of liberation, not an army of occupation. OK, OK. Um, so, you know, considering the man and the research you've done into him, have you have you um, come up with an idea about what his greatest military triumph was? Is there one battle that overshadows all others? I mean, there's one obvious one which comes to mind, but is that the one that we ought to focus on, do you think? Well, no, I don't think so, really. I mean, Waterloo, <clears throat> Waterloo he really excelled at defensive battle. He was a, a brilliant tactician uh, in beating a huge army that was approaching him by deploying his men in just the right defensive positions so that they would pop up at the right moment in lines so that all their muskets were brought to bear uh, and uh, conceal themselves from the enemy as long as possible. So he's very good at defensive battles. That's why Waterloo was a brilliant success, because hmm. Waterloo was a defensive battle. Now, I think the one that I would choose is Salamanca. Salamanca was an extraordinarily impressive effort by uh, Wellington to destroy a large French army, which was... Uh, moving in front of him, and he saw an amazing chance to uh, have at it by deploying one by one his divisions against these uh, French divisions as they passed. It was a great opportunity for him, and he performed it to perfection. Uh, Salamanca was a great victory. And, and are you saying that the, the, what underlay his success was his tactical awareness? Is that what, what, what made him a great general? Uh, well, a number of things. I mean, strategically, he was brilliant at not attacking and not exposing himself to attack mm. from an army that was too big for him. I mean, when he saw French armies uh, uh, coming together, coalescing ahead of him in Spain, he very quickly turned around and moved backwards. I mean, he wasn't a man to um, throw himself at huge odds. He was always very careful to make sure that he was going to win a battle. He always said the mark of a great general is to, is to know when to retreat and to dare to do it. I mean, he was very aware of the... Of the, of the he to take his, it was essential to him to take his time in wearing Napoleon's armies down. There was no need to go on a great swathe of destruction and advance in six months. It took him, in fact, as we know, it took him best part of seven years to get from Portugal to Waterloo. Mm, OK. And, and so do you think that Waterloo is, is over-egged in our sort of understanding of history? Do you think it's, we assign more importance to it than, than it ought to have? Oh, no, it was utterly decisive. It was terribly important. And needless to say, the Prussians and the help that they gave Wellington was also enormously important. No, if, if Napoleon had broken through uh, to Brussels... Uh, he would have destroyed the, the Prussians. He, in fact, he almost did destroy the Prussians uh, a couple of days before Waterloo. Um, if, if, if he'd got through to Brussels and, and pushed through and destroyed Wellington's army, then he would have been 
uh, once again, unbelievably, uh, in a position to confront the rest of Europe. He probably wouldn't have managed it, quite frankly. I think that by the time 1815 came along, France was so buffeted by the uh, allied attacks of the Russians and Prussians and Austrians and, and the Brits too, of course, that it probably wouldn't have been able to stand up to the Russians and Austrians who would then have come in and attacked France. But, you know, it would have been an extraordinary uh, success for Napoleon if he had won Waterloo. And it would have set him up for, a, you know, what really could have been a change of history. Now, there's, there's two important British martial figures operating at this time. We've got Nelson as well as Wellington. I suspect I know the answer to this question, but who do you think is the more important figure in British history? Well, I, I, I think it's unfair on both of them to, to, to say that the, 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 the other one was more important, to be honest. I think, well, Nelson, they, they complemented each other so utterly brilliantly. Uh, Nelson, no question, Nelson... Nelson won the sea for Britain. And by winning the sea for Britain, he opened the sea lanes and he secured the background to Wellington's Peninsula campaign. The, the problem, Dave, is, of course, that Nelson really is 10 years effectively before Wellington's key time. I mean, mm. he is, uh, Nelson is the late 1790s and early 1800s. Wellington's key time is 1810 to 1815. <clears throat> so by, by which time, of course, Nelson was dead. Um, but Nelson, Nelson was an, who achieved a staggering conquest of the sea in all these various battles and finally Trafalgar. Um, Wellington took up the opportunity offered by Nelson's triumphs to land a force in Portugal and, and, and push forward across the peninsula using the Royal Navy's command of the sea to provide him with, with, with the supplies he needed. So the two, the two really went together. Which one destroyed Napoleon? Well, clearly, I suppose, Wellington in the end uh, destroyed Napoleon the size of Waterloo. But um, Nelson played a vital part. OK, and uh, just um, looking beyond, uh, beyond, beyond 1815, um, Wellington, of course, went on to become Prime Minister. Have you, did, did you look at that aspect of his life at all? Uh, what are your observations on yes. how he did politically? Yes, I mean he was—he was a soldier. Probably should never have been a politician, but he was—he uh, was notable for while he was prime minister for one great achievement, which was the emancipation of the Catholics. He did lead to the acceptance of Catholics in high places, which is terribly important. He was an Anglo-Irishman himself; he knew how important the Catholics were. Um, but as prime minister. Uh, not being, uh, being a, a, a dyed-in-the-wool aristocrat, not having the slightest intention of allowing the vote to anybody other than the top people, which has caused it a sense outrageous, and today we'd find it quite outrageous. He, um, he opposed all that, and so he really was, he was, he was on the losing side. It was bound, the, the vote was bound to spread to nearly everybody over the next, uh, the next uh, few years. Um, my, my, one of the amusing stories I found rather lovely, I'm not quite certain it's true, but it's said of Wellington, that after his first cabinet meeting, he came out and he said, you know, it was an extraordinary affair. I gave them their orders, and they wanted to stay and discuss them. <laughs> so, so that rather gives a measure of his uh, his approach to politics then i suppose well that's right i mean he, he was a, he was a, he was a general i mean he, he really didn't have much time for people who disobeyed his orders so that was peter snow his book to war with wellington is available now in paperback from john murray and as i said he'll be holding forth in wellington in a discussion chaired by myself and also featuring naval historian professor andrew lambert and that's happening at the chalk valley history festival taking place near salisbury and it's on the 7th of july 
You can find out more about the festival at www.cvhf.org.uk or call 01722-781-206 for tickets. Finally, we'd really like to hear what you think about this podcast. So we've got an email address, podcast at historyextra.com, where you can email in your thoughts. Alternatively, there's a voicemail that you can call to leave a message about the podcast. The number is a UK number, 0117-230-2002. UK landline callers will pay local rate, but overseas charges and charges from other operators may vary. We'll broadcast or read out any particularly trenchant, witty or insightful comments in future podcasts. So that's it for this week. Next time round, we'll be looking at cordiality in the Crusades and having a bleak assessment of what the Romans did for us. <laughs>